Thank you, Kent, for our music today. Welcome to those of you joining us on live stream. We are in a little different uh, place in our Bibles than we have been. We're taking a break from the book of Galatians for a couple weeks. So we are in John chapter 3, and then we will also be in Romans chapter 3 and 10 uh, this morning also. I'm going to do four messages, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Sunday morning, and Sunday night. So uh, tune in for all of them. Uh, I want to do these on these subjects, salvation, then eternal security, then assurance of our salvation, and then evangelism. I have a booklet, of course, I wrote on that, but these messages kind of go along with that. And so uh, I hope that uh, you'll be encouraged by these as we do it. We're starting in John chapter 3, and uh, this message is about salvation. It's important that we understand what our salvation is, how we got it, and uh, how someone else can have it also, though we'll talk about evangelism last of these four messages. In John chapter 3, there are three things that stick out to me. First is Nicodemus. You, you remember in, in the first uh, two verses that uh, we are introduced to this ruler of the Jews who cam, comes to Jesus by night. In this first chapter, he is a seeker. As a matter of fact, as far as we know, he was not a believer at this time and went away still an unbeliever. He's seeking the truth, and Jesus uh, speaks to him. As a matter of fact, all of the verses that we read a few minutes ago here in our service through verse 21 probably were spoken to Nicodemus by Jesus. And so uh, it's a long passage, and of course, within that we have John 3.16. We find Nicodemus the second time in John chapter 7. And by the way, the Gospel of John is the only one that mentions Nicodemus even. But in John chapter 7, we find him as an investigator. He is part of the Sanhedrin. He's part of the Jewish council. And they are meeting together and actually plotting how they might take Jesus prisoner, arrest him. And it's Nicodemus who stands up in the midst of him and says, well, wait a minute, does our law condemn somebody before we hear them? Of course, he had already heard Jesus, and he knew how powerful these words were. Uh, then we find Nicodemus a third time in the book of John, chapter 19, when he and Joseph of Arimathea are taking the body of Jesus off the cross and putting uh, Jesus' body in uh, Joseph's tomb. There we find Nicodemus out there in sight of everyone uh, showing his faith that he now has believed in Jesus Christ. No doubt he was kicked out of the Sanhedrin and may have lost other rights as a Jewish uh, man anyway. So Nicodemus is here in this story. Secondly, we have this brass serpent in verses 14 and 15. Interesting here. It's a story, as you remember, from Numbers 21 where God sends a plague among, uh, or uh, uh, snakes, that is, among the Israelites because of their disobedience. And you remember that the serpents, the snakes, were biting people and they were dying because of the poison. And so God instructs Moses to make a brass serpent and put that on a pole and then put it in front of the people and then tells them, whenever someone looks at that serpent, they will live. They'll be healed of that, uh, of that poison. 
Now, Jesus is going to use that story here in John chapter 3 in a unique way about himself and his crucifixion, of course. But here's the interesting thing to me about that. The, the serpent was the problem. The serpent was the sin, if you will. He was biting people and they were dying of it. So God says, put the very thing that is destroying you on that pole, and when you look at that, I will heal you. And in a way, I think what Jesus is saying is, I will be the sin bearer. I will bear your sins on the cross. And when you look to me where your sin is being dealt with, you will live. And so Jesus is going to use that. As a matter of fact, uh, he will say in verse 14, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In the same way, I will be. And in John 12, he says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me when people begin to look to me. That's unique here. And then thirdly is John 3.16. Of course, this verse uh, is familiar to all of us. And uh, from those verses, I want us to look at our first two points in our outline. You have it on your bulletin or on the screen. The fact of salvation, what is it in 14 to 16? And then why do we need it, the need of salvation? So let me give you just three thoughts from each of these. First of all, the fact of salvation is God loves you, for God so loved the world. That may come as a surprise to people, people who don't know the Scripture, who don't know uh, anything about the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, anything about the true God, may be surprised that God loves them. God loves the whole world. God loves you. First of all, he created you, and when he created you, he made you in his own image. He gave you life. If we go back to chapter 1 and the first three or four, five verses of chapter 1, all things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made, and in him was life. And this life was the light of men. So God made you and gave you life. Secondly, under this, he so loved the world. Here's just kind of a unique detail about John 3.16. You know, those Greek-speaking people, when they would write sentences, they didn't have to put things in sentence order like we do. They could change the order, the words around, and it still made sense to them. But one of the things they did called the emphatic order is if they wanted to emphasize any word in that sentence, they put it first in the sentence. That word came first, and all the rest of the words came later. If you and I did that in English, we'd, <laughs> we'd really be mixed up. But they, they didn't mix them up. So you know what the first word is? So. The first word is hutas. So much God loved you. That's the emphasis here. How much God loves you. So much that he gave his son for you. That's how much he loved you. Would you do that for somebody? Would you give your very son for somebody else's life? God the Father did that for you. Now that word that there is another important word. He gave his only begotten son that. It's different from the second time the word appears in the sentence. This one means it overflowed. God, so much God loved you that that love overflowed in giving you his son. I'll, show, I'll read another verse where this word is used. Behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, 
insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves. That expression, insomuch, is the same word here. That God did this. Just as the storm came and just covered the boat with water and waves, God so loved you that he covered you with the gift of his son, gave it for you and for me and for everyone. So God loves you is the first thing you need to understand. And secondly, because of that, God gave his son. Called here the only begotten son. It's a unique word in the Bible. It belongs here. It actually appears nine times in the New Testament, five times by John here and in his, his letter. Only begotten, that's a good English word for it. I know that sometimes you can say the word only or you can say unique, and in certain contexts that makes sense. But I like only begotten for this reason. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And the Son of God was eternal. And what we call the eternal generation of the Son and the Holy Spirit means forever in eternity past, God was God the Father and God the Son, begotten of God in that sense. Now, he will be begotten by a virgin. He will be born into this world. But eternally, he is, he is God's Son that God so loved that he gave him for you and me. And so John will say it in chapter 1, in verse 14, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And in verse 18, no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Now, we have it twice in our chapter, 16 and 18, but in 1 John 4, 9 is John's other use of it. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. And so this word begotten, this only begotten is important. And that includes, by the way, he was virgin born. He was born of a woman, not of a man and a woman but born of a woman, Galatians 4.4 4 says, when he was begotten into this world. And maybe mostly unique, he was born to die because this whole passage is about God gave his only begotten son to be lifted up on a cross like that servant was, and if you will look at him, you will live. So he was born to die. As a matter of fact, Paul will testify to this in Philippians 2.8, being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. He did that for you and me. So God loves you. God gave his son. And I'll emphasize again, thirdly, God gave his son for you. So what is it? It's a gift. If God gave it, it's a gift. You can't pay for it. You can't do something to earn it. All you can do is receive it. It's a gift, and not only that, it's for everyone. For God so loved the world that he gave his Son that whosoever, whoever believes in him, can have everlasting life. And so it's a gift, and it's for everyone, but there's a condition on this. And that is the word believe, isn't it? That whoever believes, not just whoever's born, or the whole world would be saved, and we know that's not so, whoever believes. 
whoever will, as we will see in this morning's message, whoever will receive. So that word believe means to accept. There's a, as, as some call it, a volitional element here, an ethical element. Matter of fact, this is why we are evangelical in our practice. We believe in good news. We believe that we can give this opportunity to people to accept Christ as Savior. Let me tell you a story about a boy named Charles Haddon Spurgeon. This happened in 1850. And, of course, you know that name Spurgeon by now. But uh, as a 15-year-old boy, he was saved on a Sunday morning by walking to church in a snowstorm. And the snowstorm was so bad that he couldn't go to his church. He had to turn into a church he didn't know. It happened to be a primitive Methodist church. And the, the storm was so bad that the pastor couldn't even make it uh, to church. I'm waiting for that kind of storm. I've never seen one. But, uh, uh, <laughs> but uh, he turned in, and you could count the number of people almost on one hand that were actually sitting in the church. Since the pastor couldn't be there, a man out of the church stood up and took the Bible and went up, went up front. To this day, even in his autobiography, Spurgeon says, we don't know who this man was. We've never been able to find out his name or who he was. But what he did was he opened the Bible to Isaiah 45, 22, which says, look unto me and be ye saved all ends of the earth. And this man didn't know how to preach or didn't know what to say. And basically he kept looking at, at young Charles because he was a 15-year-old boy and the only one he didn't know probably in church and said, you look, young man, you look to God. You look unto me and be saved. And basically that was his whole sermon that he repeated over and over again. You know what happened? Charles Haddon Spurgeon was converted from that message. And because he realized what I need to do is look to the Savior, he was saved. Here's his own testimony out of his book. Spurgeon says, As the moment before, there was none more wretched than I was, so within that second, there was none more joyous. It did not take any longer than a flash of lightning. It was done and has never been undone. If we look to Jesus as he's on the cross dying for us, then we will be saved. There's an old song, you know, look and live, my brother, live. Look to Jesus now and live. And that's how we live. So the fact of salvation is here in these wonderful verses. Secondly, there's a need of salvation, though, as the text goes on in verses 17 to 20, actually 21. The need of salvation, and why is that? Three things I'll think about here. In verse 17, well, there, there was a mission of the Son. So verse 17 will say, for God sent not his Son. But let me emphasize that word sent. Jesus was sent into the world. When the decision was made to redeem sinners, then God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all had their responsibilities to do. And it's God's to give the command, and it's the Son's to follow through on that command. So God loved the world. He gave his Son, so he sent the Son into the world. And he came into the world for you and me. Now, I want you to notice the negative and then the positive because he was not sent to do something. Verse 17 says, God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. 
Why is that? Why, why did he not condemn the world? We are going to be told in just a minute in the, in the words following, because the world was already condemned, because the world had been full of sinners since Adam and Eve, because the world is under the condemnation of God. Jesus didn't have to come and do any more to that. It's already that way. You know, when a sinner says, you know, I'm, I'm too bad to be saved. I've got too many sins in my life to be saved. Take them to this verse and let them see. Uh, it doesn't matter. You're in a perfect place to be saved because the world is already under condemnation. But here's the positive. So in verse 17, but he came, he was sent, that the world through him might be saved. He came to save the world. And by the way, the world, whoever believes, that means it's unlimited. I believe in what you would call an, an unlimited atonement. And that is Jesus' atonement on the cross was for everyone, for everyone in the world. And whoever then is responsible to come to him and receive him as Savior. So God so loved the world. We can go to the world and we can say to any person we, met, we meet, God loves you. And God would like to save you. That's a valid message to anyone in this world. So the mission of the Son is seen there. And then the, re the response uh, of the sinner is seen in verse 18. But uh, let me emphasize again the end of verse 17. Because that, that the world through him might be saved. And here's another little detail I think is important. Might be. You know, actually, that, that's a purposeful word. It's called a subjunctive mode in that language. It means a doubtful mode. You might be, and you might not be. You could be. You could be saved, but not everyone will be saved. And so even though Jesus died for the whole world, God loved the whole world, even though you may preach the gospel to the whole world, not everyone will be saved. But they can be. They might be saved. And so notice the response. First of all, the one who believes in verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned. The one who believes, the one who leaves his sin and comes to Jesus Christ, the one who sees that gift being offered to him without price, without works, and says, I'll take that gift. That person is the one who believes. But secondly, the response is not only that, but in the negative, who, he who believes not. He that believeth not is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So what does he do? He does nothing. You don't even have to say, I don't want it. You've already not wanted it. You're already in your sin. You're already condemned uh, by your sin. You don't have to refuse it and therefore you're lost. You're lost from the beginning. That's why the gospel message is so urgent that we go to people who basically are just remaining in their sins. And they think they're okay. They think that they're not condemned. They are on their way to a sinner's hell, and we need to warn them about that. You remember, and we'll turn to Romans in a minute, Romans 3.10, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. No one is. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All are short of the glory of God. So the response of the sinner is either to believe or not to believe. And thirdly, 
<laughs> there's a problem in this world. We have a real problem when we try to give the gospel out. You'd think the whole world would rush to it, don't you? You'd think the whole world would say, great, there's something I need. You know, I have a debt of a million dollars. Here's someone that wants to give me a million dollars. I'll go right to that. No, that's not what happens. So in verse 19, this is the condemnation, part of what you already have. Light has come into the world, and what? Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They love the darkness. They, they love it there. They love their sin. They like what they're doing. You know, when you don't understand what sin is, you don't understand the sinful nature that human beings have, you go do those things that are pleasing to you, pleasing to your flesh, pleasing to your eyes, pleasing to your pride, pleasing to all of those things, and you think, boy, I like this. I like to do this. And you don't realize that these are, this is the love of darkness, the love of sin that is in the world and in you. And so they're in darkness and they love it. And verse 20 says, everyone that doeth evil hateth the light and neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be uh, reproved. Don't turn on the light on me. I don't want the lights on. You know, when you come into a room that no one's been in in a long time and there are, there are uh, roaches all over the, the floor, you flip the light switch on and what happens? They run to the corners, don't they? They can't stand that light that all of a sudden you've brought to them and they run from it. And you know, one of the hardest things to do, isn't it, is to go to people who don't know Christ and speak about their sin speak about the fact that they need to be forgiven from that sin, that what they're doing is actually sinful and, and they're under the condemnation of God. That is a tough thing to do. But folks, that's turning the light on. And there's going to be a reaction to it. It might be a good reaction, who knows? But there will be reaction to it. It irritates them, and so they don't like it. John 1.4 said, In him was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness, excuse me, and the darkness comprehended it not. I don't like it. I don't want to look at it. I don't want it. John 1.9 then says, That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But then he says, but as many as received him, to them gave you the power to become the sons of God. Those who believe, those who receive, can become sons of God. Now, before we leave John and go to Romans, that verse 21 is kind of an interesting verse, and sometimes it reads kind of difficultly. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light. I'm reading the old version this morning. He that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest that they were wrought in God. Here's what it's saying. The one that is practicing truth is the one coming to the light. If you are willing to receive the truth, then you can come to the light. And when you accept God's truth, you'll be in the light. I like the way Homer Kent in his commentary worded it. He said this, Doing the truth is antecedent to coming to the light. Such a person does the truth when he responds with appropriate action 
to God's revelation and accepts the light of the gospel as proclaimed in Christ. And so when you hear the truth and respond to it, you come to the light, and that's where we need to be. So notice the two things here from John, the fact of salvation, the need of salvation. Now, we want to turn to the book of Romans. So got to go to your right, a couple books, and Romans chapter 3, first of all, where we will stop, and in this, in this chapter, and then we'll jump up to chapter 10, we follow up on the basis of salvation and then the means to get the salvation. The basis of salvation is the who, and we want to talk about Jesus Christ here. I love this passage in Romans 3, and you know, folks, uh, often we have called from chapter 3 all the way through chapter 10, the Romans road, you, you realize that? Well, the reason is, is because Paul does deal with salvation in Romans 1 through 8. And uh, these verses uh, tell us about salvation, why we need it, what we have to do, who can save us, and how to be saved. And so they're very appropriate for what we're talking about this morning also. So the basis of salvation is in Jesus Christ, by His work, for God's glory. So let me review these. First of all, chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. Now take your left hand and turn that page back <laughs> to chapter 1. I'm, I'm sorry. Um, I didn't mark the verse. I don't know where it is, so I'll, I'll just quote it to you. The, the, the wrath of God is revealed upon all men. And then he says, but the grace of God is revealed. So up until chapter 3 and our verse in verse 21, he's talked about the wrath of God. For, three and a half, for two and a half chapters, he's talked about why men are sinners, as we have already talked about. But now he's going to talk about the righteousness of God. Now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now what he's saying here is there's no righteousness of the law. Sinner, you've got to realize you can't do it yourself. You can't follow the Mosaic law. You can't follow your own law. You can't follow some good man's law. There's nothing you can do to gain righteousness. You are a sinner before God, and you can't do anything about it. So verse 22, though, he gives this. God gives righteousness by faith. So even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. And so you can't come to God by your own works. You have to have the righteousness God gives you, a gift that he's going to give. We saw in John 3.16. But look at verse 23. When I quote 23, which is so familiar to all of us, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, I like to use the last phrase of verse 22. For there is no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, what does he mean by that? For two and a half chapters, he has covered everyone in the world. He started with the heathen, as we sometimes call those who 
live in parts of the world where they've never heard the gospel and never will. You know what? They're lost. They're still unsaved. They're still condemned before God. They're born sinners from Adam and Eve. Secondly, he talked about the moralist or the good man, the man who thinks, well, I'm so good, God would surely accept me. And then he levels that argument and says, no, even you are a sinner before God. There's nothing good you can do. And then thirdly, he talks to the Jew who thought, well, because I'm, uh, you know, I'm a Jew, because I'm one of God's people, a child of Abraham, I'm saved. No, even you are lost. And so what has he concluded in chapter 3, that there's none righteous, no, not one, uh, all of sin and come short of the glory of God, there's no difference. All of us, Jew, Gentile, good and bad, we've all sinned, and nobody can come to God by anybody's effort. So there you go. What if the message stopped there, folks? What if that's all, what if that's all that was said? We'd go away condemned with no hope. But he says in our verse, since there is no difference, since no one could come that way, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Since that is true, then the fact is God made it through belief so that anyone can come. You can't come by works. You can't come by your own good credit. The only thing you can do is accept the gift that's already been paid for. And that, folks, anyone can do. That's, that's the great thing about these verses. That's the great thing about all of sin and come short of the glory of God. If there was one person who was able to get to heaven by their good works, God could have done it that way. And how many would get to heaven? One? Actually, Jesus was the only one as being fully man, as you know. But since all of sin and no one can get there, He's made it available to all sinners. You can believe and come by faith. So it's, it's in Jesus Christ by his work, secondly, is my thought, in verses 24 and 25. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Verse 26, to declare, I, I say at this time, his righteousness, in other words, not yours. Now, there are three big words in uh, verses 24 and 25 that I, I want to just emphasize. One is the word justified, being justified freely by his grace. Justification means your slate is clean. It means God has you have a slate that you owe. In other words, you know, you have a, a credit column and a debit column, but the problem is and you have nothing in your credit column and you have a, a, a list uh, 100 miles line long in the, in the debit column. What has God done? He's justified your account. He's taken away all that is against you and he put his own righteousness in the credit side. That's justification, forensic righteousness. He's, he's done it himself and, and uh, given us that righteousness. The second word is redemption, which means he paid the price. Redemption means that uh, you've been redeemed, you've been bought. Uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever redeemed a coupon, for example. You, you take this coupon, you go to the cash register, and uh, you redeem it and get credit for it, right? Now, 
I have a, by the way, I have a gift from God that God gave me that you, you may not have, but I have it, and that is, in any line, grocery store or any other store, I guarantee you I can get in the longest line. That's a gift I have. I can sit there and study all of the lines and figure out I'm going to go in that line, I think, and it will be the longest line. I was in a store just the other day. I bought a pair of tennis shoes. I buying these shoes. And uh, I got in a line that only had one person in it because the other had quite a few. Well, this person actually had about six pairs of shoes in a basket. And I said to him, you buying shoes for your whole family? He just smiled and kind of nodded. Well, he had a coupon for everyone. And so I stood there while he raked out his coupons, some of them on his phone, some of them on paper, and it took longer than all the other lines. People, I watched. If I'd have gotten that long line, I'd have been done by now. Nope, he had to redeem them. But you know what? He walked away. I don't know if he paid anything. <laughs> I mean, these were all redeemed. Hey, he probably paid something. I don't know. I'm just trying to illustrate that God redeemed you so that you had to pay nothing. And he did it through Jesus Christ. And the last word is propitiation, which in short means his wrath is removed from you. Propitiation, he was propitiated. His wrath was taken off of you and no longer abides on you. In John 3, we read, you're under the wrath of God because of the condemnation of your sin. That wrath has been removed. God smiles on you. You are his child. God protects you and wants the best for you. So Jesus Christ and his work, and it is for God's glory. So what you have in those two verses, 25 and 26, that I, that I read to you already is, Jesus Christ is righteous and you are not. So what God has done is he has put you in Jesus Christ and he has counted Jesus Christ as your righteousness, which has taken away all of your sin. And if we say, well, is it, is it just of God to just forgive people of their sin? No, it would not be if there wasn't a redemption for that. But God has placed Jesus Christ where you should be, and his righteousness has now become yours so that God can forgive you and still be a just God. Because he looks at, when he looks at you, he looks at Jesus Christ. When he looks at your record, he doesn't see your old sinful record. He sees the righteousness of Christ here, and nothing can be against that. So read them again. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness, not yours, for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. And, and, and it's so important, he says it again, to declare, I say at this time, his, not yours, his righteousness, that he, God the Father, might be just and justifier of the one I freely give salvation to, the one who's in Christ. I think that's a wonderful message. We call it the great transaction, and that is my sin was placed on his account, and his righteousness was placed on my account. He took alien sin that did not belong to him and gave me alien righteousness which doesn't belong to me. God remains just, 
and he's my justifier. He has justified me and squared my account. Praise the Lord for that. Let me go on to chapter 10 real quick. And these familiar verses in chapter 10, the means of salvation. Now, if we begin in, in verse 8, uh, and let me read that, that verse. It doesn't really start there. The thought begins back at the beginning, or at least in verse 4, that it is not of works but of faith. In verses 6 and 7, he's describing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see that in 6 and 7? Say not in thine heart who shall ascend into the heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up again from the dead. Paul is filling in the words of Moses here from the book of Deuteronomy. So in verse 8, he says, it's within your reach. What saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. You know what he's saying there? The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel is Jesus came down from above. He's God in the flesh. Secondly, he died for your sins and was raised again for your justification. The person of Christ and the work of Christ is what the gospel is. Let me read it again in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered unto you... First of all, that which I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel. That's what saves you. When you look to Jesus, you have to see those things and believe those things. And so, uh, it's in your mouth, it's in your heart, verse 8 says. It's very nigh to you. This is what we're preaching. That, verse 9. So second thought is, you must believe it. Notice it. Thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. Do you see the person and work of Christ in that verse? Now, I know that the word believe and the word confess, and then the word confess and the word believe, and that takes a whole other message, but let me just put it this way. They're essentially saying the same thing. They're essentially saying, you must understand the Lord Jesus. He's not just a man. He's not just a religious leader. He is God from heaven, the virgin-born Son of God. And not only that, you must also understand that he died for your sins and was resurrected. He rose again for your sins. Are you able to believe that? The person that he is and the work that he did for you? If not, you're not ready to be saved. If not, you're, you haven't believed it, and you can't be saved without that belief. So it's within your reach. You must believe it, and you must accept it. And so we also have this word call in verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That also is, by the way, a verb that is in that subjunctive mode. Whoever may call, whoever will call. Those that will will be saved. So whoever may and whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, I love verse 14 because verse 14 kind of puts the evangelism in order. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they even preach except they be sent? In other words, somebody has to go preach. 
And when, that, when the preaching is done, somebody, a lost person, has to hear. Faith cometh by hearing, verse 17, hearing by the word of God. And then you have to understand what you've heard and you have to believe it. You have to accept that. And then you say, I want that as my salvation. I will commit my eternal soul to him. False faith can be just a head knowledge, but not a heart knowledge. As somebody said, you can miss heaven by, what is that, 14 inches or something like that, uh, between your head and your heart. You can, you can understand things intellectually, but say, I don't want it. I understand what's being said here. I don't believe it. I don't want it. But there, of course, is the true faith that comes uh, in the heart. Jesus often faced this. In John 12, the chief rulers also believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. If I become a Christian, I'm going to have to suffer for it, and I don't want to suffer, so I'm not going to. So this happens a lot, of course. Whoever calls shall be saved. Whoever appeals, this same word is when Paul appealed to Caesar, you know, in his case. He says, I, I appeal unto Caesar. And so he said, well, unto Caesar you should go. He appealed. He called, I want to call upon Caesar. It's the same kind of thing that we call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me close with, with one other thought. I know it's been a lot here. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, Unless you become as a little child, you can't come to me. He doesn't mean that only children are in heaven or that all little children are in heaven. But he says you have to come as a little child with childlike faith. Not with all your theology, not with all your philosophy, not with all of your wonderful understanding. You have to come as a child would come. I'm saved. I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. Jesus died for me. I want him as my Savior. Childlike faith. He will say also in that chapter, uh, you have to be as one of these little ones who believe on me. One of these little ones. Now, the word child is the word paideo, which means a, an, a dependent one. But little ones comes from the word mikros. You hear that word mikros? If we get our word micro from it. So, you know, uh, a microscopic thing is something that's very tiny. Micro means very little. Paul said in Acts 26, 22, he was witnessing to small and great, to the very small and the very great. The, the, the parable of the mustard seed, it's the smallest among seed, micros, the tiniest among seed. That's what Jesus says you have to do to be saved. You know what? That's good news. You don't have to understand theology. You don't have to read, have read the whole Bible. You don't have to gone to a seminary or, or Bible college to be saved. You just have to put away your adult objections. That is your excuses for coming to Christ. And put them away and come to him as a little child and say, I want to be saved. I want Jesus Christ as my Savior. That's the message. And that's what salvation is. I want you to stand with me, if you will. And we will sing a song of invitation, as we always do, though we pretty much know each other in this church or wherever you are. But who knows how the, the Lord has spoken to someone's heart, whether here or wherever they hear it today. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you for these wonderful words 
in the book of John and the book of Romans and, and so many other places. Oh, Father, help us to understand it as a child would and realize what you're offering to us and reach out to you and be saved. Someone hearing my voice here or somewhere else, someone hearing a gospel message today of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, Father, that they might look and live. Just look to Jesus, realize that's their Savior, accept him as Savior. So, Father, I pray you would do this in our midst today. Help us as, as believers to be encouraged with the gospel that we have, how, how easy it is to give it out and, and to uh, give someone hope of eternal life. So, Father, bless as you speak to our hearts today. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Kent's going to come lead us in song, an invitation song.